Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Christofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When Ryan was 21 and finishing his senior year of college, he got one of those phone calls, the kind of call that marks a before and after in people's lives. In Ryan's case, the phone call brought news that his older sister had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of multiple sclerosis. This wasn't the first time Ryan got before and after news. When he was three, his father died of leukemia. Ryan grew up with his mom, brother, and older half-sister, a sister who was old enough to play a big role in supporting him in his grief. Ryan's sister has been living with this diagnosis for the past seven years, and in recent months, her illness has progressed significantly. Ryan, who lives 3,000 miles away from her on the West Coast, has been hit with new levels of grief surrounding his sister's illness and prognosis. When someone is ill, the grief of those who love them often goes unacknowledged. The world around us doesn't hit start on the grief clock until someone actually dies. Today, we're going to be exploring what it's like to grieve when someone is still alive and how our relationship with them can be shaped and influenced by the knowledge that so much could change at any moment. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's really lovely to be here behind the microphone. Ryan, your sister is 12 years older than you, so she was about Mm -hmm. to turn 15 when your father died and you were three. What kind of roles have you played in each other's lives? I consider myself incredibly lucky to have her in my life. I I say on a regular basis, you know, even even, uh, when it comes to talking with my partner, that uh, my sister is my favorite person in the world. And a lot of it just comes down to she was someone who could be there for me in a way that... Uh, maybe a closer sibling in age or a parent couldn't be. She was someone who could express love and support in a way that didn't come with some of the worry that comes behind parents or didn't come with some of the competition that you experience with a, a closer sibling. And so I consider myself really lucky in part because she went through so much uh, as uh, she grappled with grief on the first round herself that she was someone who could talk honestly with me about it, honestly about feelings around grief, or honestly about mental health. And at points during my wilder teen and college years, when I was probably worrying my mother the most, (laughs) she was the member of the family that could still show love and understood that if I needed to do things crazy, that she could still let me know that she still loved me regardless. It sounds like your sister was kind of that magical age where, as you mentioned, she was old enough to not be like fighting for space with you in the back seat, but she wasn't old enough to be worrying in the way that maybe a parent would. And so you could have this really honest connection, that almost like a mentor. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I played a somewhat similar role, maybe less on the mentor end, but more on the supportive end. Um, When we were kids, uh, she went through a lot, uh, experiencing grief, uh, struggling with coming to terms with her sexuality in the uh, late 90s and early aughts, 
And I was someone who stayed in touch, you know, over the phone, even at an early age. And at different points when she was struggling a lot, I think having, you know, a little brother who loved her and cared about her, you know, even if I didn't know what she was going through, like, helped her out. So despite the age difference, it was really a mutual relationship in terms of support and connection and kind of anchoring each other back into the connection with family. Yeah, absolutely. So then what was it like for you when you got that phone call and you got the news that your sister had been diagnosed with MS? Uh, That was a tough day. Uh, I think even now, thinking about it, you know, my head tries to tiptoe around the, uh, the messy feelings and emotions from it. The call really rocked me. It was, um, she had known about the diagnosis for a year, but needed time to come to grips on her own before she could talk with me or with our younger brother about it. I can remember that day just being floored by the news and the sense of uh, feelings of sorrow and despair and then followed by uh, white-hot anger and often cycling between the two or providing a combination of both for for quite a while. Um, And you've mentioned, too, that at the time your sister was, when the diagnosis happened, she was married or she was in a really supportive relationship? Yeah, so I I got to see her marry her uh, partner of... I think it was seven years. I got to see them get married at a beautiful, joyful party wedding a few years before she got the uh, diagnosis. You know, over time after the diagnosis, things started to kind of crack at the seams around her marriage and things just stopped working around it. Um, so very recently in the, the last year, uh, she finally asked for a divorce. And it was something, being so far away, that I couldn't see or witness it going on, just occasionally visiting and and getting a sense that things were stressful and and not the happiest at the time. Uh, So hearing the news was was another bit of grief. I I lost a a sister-in-law who had been part of the family since I was in middle school. Also had to deal with a sudden new flush of worry and fear around it. Yeah, that your sister's primary caregiver was, you know, looking ahead to that person not being there and who's going to be able to take care of your sister or be supportive for her and her illness. Yeah, she's always been independent, but uh, knowing there isn't someone there who can just do, like, something as simple as a, a quick run to the grocery store. At the same time, I'm also really proud of her for asking for the divorce because I know a decision like that is something really difficult and scary, especially when you have mobility and, and disability issues uh, around you. It can be really daunting to have to face losing uh, your partner or your primary source of support. But I think it was the right call, and I, I think she's been a lot happier since getting out of it, and it's allowing her to enter a new phase of her life. In this process of being connected to your sister throughout her diagnosis and her illness, how has that changed you? For me, the biggest change, I think, is just I've always been supportive of ideas of equality and rights for people uh, who are handicapped or have issues with mobility. But actually witnessing it firsthand and seeing someone so close to you uh, go through it is a much more eye-opening thing. You know, it's, it's a little frustrating that it, it took actually witnessing it directly in my own life to realize. But even just simple things like going out to a concert 
or going out to the store present new challenges. And when approaching things like that, the biggest lesson I think I've learned was how to use language in a way or change language in a way that still allows people to keep their dignity or still allows people to be empowered. Um, So the biggest lesson was once I was visiting her uh, and uh, noticed if she was, like, struggling with something, there was a huge difference between saying, oh, do you need help with that? Versus, oh, would you like help with that? Mm. And I found, like, the swapping out like for need as often as possible was just a really important thing. And I think for her to have the option to still have some agency, to say, no, no, I've got this, just give me a little more time, or... No, I'd, I'd love some help. Thank you so much for offering. And I think it's a, it's a tough thing. When people see disability, there's a lot of fear that comes out. Um, sometimes there's a, that can come out in really positive ways. Um, when I last visited her, we uh, went out to like different concerts and shows, and it was like she had superpowers where space for five people ahead of her was completely clear at the concert. The person who wasn't had kept looking back being like, is this okay? Is this okay? <laughs> and she's like, no, it's fine. I can see. I can see. Or uh, one instance, we, she discovered the uh, handicap accessible tickets at the uh, at a concert hall she bought were not actually handicap accessible. Fortunately, uh, the uh, venue uh, or the staff jumped on it real quick, and it was instant upgrade to booth right next to the orchestra, <laughs> right at the front. There's a lot of work that can be done to make things easier for folks who are handicapped and have issues with mobility. Um, but it's uh, it's nice when people actually make the added effort to uh, be there. The important distinction, though, is to make sure you're not treating it like this person needs it. You're treating it like you're offering it to lift this person up. Along those lines of changing your language around how you talk about need and, and wanting help, how else do you talk about your sister's illness and diagnosis with other people in your life? I'm careful with it. I don't talk about it too often. You know, if I'm at work or if I'm hanging out with friends, it's usually something I, I try not to bring up too much um, unless it, it's something that comes up naturally. And it's, it goes the same with talking about my uh, own father's passing. That's usually not something that comes up un- unless I'm talking about volunteering at the Dougie Center <laughs> or talking about something from childhood and bringing up that perspective. For me, I don't talk about it because very often the reactions people have are well-meaning, but also kind of a bummer. You know, people like to share stories about watching others uh, pass away from multiple sclerosis and, and talk about how awful it was to see things like that happen. And that can be really downer to hear that. The, what I do like talking about it when I find other people going through similar things, where a close family member or friend goes through uh, a sudden change that either leaves them disabled or suddenly they discover a terminal illness. I like sharing my story in a way that talks about more about the positive ends of things, talks about the strength that I've seen come out, the good moments that happen, and, and the joy of still being able to be in touch with her and still be close with her. And I find that's always really helpful for people going through the same thing because it gives them more of an ability to still think about their loved one or their person in a positive way. So not so much that you're avoiding talking about the reality of the situation, but more that you're expanding the conversation that can happen around it. It doesn't just have to be 
the tragic storyline. There can be other elements of, like you said, growth and strength and things that you've seen. Absolutely. And I think when it comes to talking about people who are dealing with terminal illnesses or with disability, uh, we kind of owe it to them to not just talk about the tragedy and the sadness around it, uh, but to also still talk about what we love about the people, what inspires us about the person, the good moments that we have with those per- people. I think there are still beautiful moments that happen between a diagnosis and the uh, the inevitable. And there's talking about you know your sister and her experience, and then there's your experience and the feelings that you have around it. And I'm wondering about how how is the grief around this experience similar or different to the grief around the death of your dad? Similar and different in different ways, and a lot of it has to do with the age difference. Uh, I was only three when my father passed away, um, and there's a lot of grief present there, and, and I have a few memories of him, but a lot of my relationship with my father is more built around an idea of absence rather than actually missing something that I felt that I had. But even with that, there's still a lot of feelings and emotions that tie into that and you know when I was uh, a teenager in college I I noticed that breakups would be really challenging where if I went through one it suddenly got really rough and I would have to lock myself in a room and just like play really sad music for a few (laughs) days straight and what I've realized is that was actually me kind of working through grief at the same time that those moments were kind of activating something in me that was still underneath. So watching this happen slowly, that can also pull the same thing. I was really lucky that after her divorce, I was able to get permission from uh, work to uh, take a couple weeks off work and spend a couple weeks working remotely and spent that time helping her out around her home. And But then afterwards, there was just this dark cloud that hung over because all those worries and grief and just missing her still stu- stuck around. Yeah, it's almost like each new grief experience is an invitation to revisit past grief experiences and they sort of metabolize together. You mentioned this a little bit, but what are the things that you wish people would ask you and talk to you about? And what are the things you wish people would not ask you and not talk to you about? Yeah, so part of uh, what inspired me wanting to do this was came around a, a conversation I had with uh, a couple friends at a, a party a few months ago. I met, ran into someone who we had a lot of mutual friends, um, and his brother had very tragically become disabled around a, a really senseless accident. And I had heard about it, seen the GoFundMe for it, and uh, we knew enough mutual friends that when I finally did meet him, I just wanted to talk with him and just say, how are you doing? Uh, And, you know, shared positive stories that I love about my sister and talked about how my relationship changed with her. Yeah, and I think in that moment, he felt seen at that. And we've been really close since then. But then on the opposite end of the spectrum... I had another friend who was there, too, who then started talking with both of us around it and came from a really good, meaning place, but just kept sticking his foot in his mouth and kept, uh, he had a background in healthcare and kept talking about stories of seeing people in late stages of multiple sclerosis and how bad it could be and how rough it could be. Those were two very, like, extreme cases. Most of them fall somewhere in between there, but 
what I wish I heard more from people is them telling me what they loved about the person that went through this, what inspired them about the person afterwards, um, how their relationship changed and how it made them a better person rather than just talking about the sadness around it. So say you, you're friends with somebody or you meet somebody new and that person doesn't have their own experience with a family member or a friend who has a disability or a, a long-term illness. What kinds of questions could they ask you that would lead to some connection for you? Well, the stuff to not ask comes up easiest. And I feel like the one question that always seems to come up very frequently is, is it genetic? And that, for me, is a a really challenging question to get because I I feel like it's a question that comes with, is this something you're at risk for, too? Am I going to have to see you go through this? It's a very negative question, and it raises a lot. And if someone is concerned about a genetic disorder and passing that on, you're, you're not going to put them in a good place. The things that help connect me with other people are when they talk about or just them acknowledging the challenges around it, but also sometimes putting a positive spin on it. Uh, When I last visited my sister, we got her fitted for her first electric wheelchair. Um, And it was a really emotional moment for me, like sitting in the waiting room, waiting for her to like go through and get sized up and, and take it for a test spin. It was sad to know that she was going into that stage of her condition, but it was also really fun to see her have a blast spinning around. <laughs> Those uh, electric scooters they start you with have an awful turning <laughs> radius, as all of her door frames can uh, attest to. <laughs> and she was very excited at the scissor lift action on it, at finally being able to potentially get up to my height for the first time since I was probably in grade school. <laughs> That weighed on me for quite a bit, and I was visiting a friend in the area out a little bit afterwards, and I, it was a friend who has a lot of experience working with disabled people, and I kind of mentioned it to them while I was still going through the the experience and still sorting through the feelings about her getting a wheelchair, and my friend just responded with, that's great. If she's getting a wheelchair, she must really need a wheelchair, and it's so wonderful that she has access to those resources and that she's going to be able to get something that's going to improve her life and and make her quality of life that much better. We don't always want to tell people how to feel and sometimes it's important to give people space to be sad but sometimes when people talk about such a different experience that totally is outside of your own understanding that I think for most people the idea of getting the electric wheelchair is a really sad thing. But having that moment where a friend was like, that's really great that your sister's getting care and has access to resources that are going to help her, really helped me like better sort through my feelings mm. and kind of pull more away from the sadness that was there and kind of appreciate more like the positive that she's going to get from something like this and feel excited for her. It sounds like, too, with that friend, you trusted that they weren't saying that as a way to take your sadness away, but more to offer an additional perspective. Absolutely. So based on your experience in this situation with your sister having pretty aggressive MS, what suggestions do you have for other folks who might be in a similar situation where they have a family member or a friend who's facing an illness? I think the thing I keep repeating to myself is the, uh, the inevitability of the future doesn't have to hold the present hostage. Uh, you don't have to focus on the end result. 
Yeah, on a certain level, all of us are going to die at some point. And some, some people get there a little quicker than, than other people do. If we hang on to that idea, it prevents us from really appreciating and enjoying those moments that we do have left. Another thing that's really important to me, and, and this is something my sister talked a lot about when we would talk about experiences with grief or with depression and mental illness, and it's something that I share with people very regularly when they're going through grief, it's okay to feel how you're feeling. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly natural. You're still deserving of love. I've said this to a lot of people going through grief, and that that seems to be something that helps people a lot. So it's something I, I invite others. If you're in a space where you can provide emotional support for someone who's dealing with a lot of intense feelings, is to share something like that. Um, and then lastly, um, be sure to take care of yourself. It's something I'm not always the best at. I think we're all aspirational when it comes to true self-care. Yeah, um, and, and, and especially if you're taking a really positive look at it. Sometimes that can get you can uh, accidentally push away feelings that you do need to experience and things that your head does need to go through. With the intense emotions that come around watching someone go through that, don't be afraid to pull yourself away and take care of your own head and take care of yourself. That's such a great point because uh, it seems like self-care gets stereotyped as things we do to relax or take a break or distract ourselves from, which are all great. Like, mm. I love Netflix as much as the next person for some distraction. And there's also an element of self-care around attending to. How do we attend to the thoughts and the feelings that we're carrying with us that might be prompting that craving for distraction? And so being able to discern when are there times when I need to, as you said, like pay attention to what's going on in my mind and my heart and my body? And what are the times when I need to take a break or distract from that? Self-care can look like a lot of different things. What yeah, are for, some examples of things you do for self-care? I would say uh, most importantly when it comes to self-care, um, number one, uh, stay away from alcohol or, or other controlled substances. Uh, while you're going through it, just to give yourself more room to directly feel what you're experiencing. In line with that, um, one of my favorite things is just to uh, sit down, something comfortable. I'll just put on a really jazzy R&B playlist and just sit back and take deep breaths as I listen to really uh, to music that feels really good. And um, that really helps for dealing with like a lot of sadness. You know, sometimes the feelings are more about anxiety. Um, and I find with things like that, a lot of it is just doing stuff with your hands. And, and this can be writing a journal entry and reflecting there directly. Or it can just be doing something manual like gardening and taking care of houseplants or building something can feel really therapeutic if you're struggling a lot with intense feelings and, and just need to give yourself a break from dealing with them as directly as part of your self-care. And listeners out there, there's no magic to the R&B. That happens to be Ryan's music of choice, but yours could look like something <laughs> totally different. <laughs> yeah, it could be experimental uh, noise music. Um, it's whatever helps you uh, get into a happier place. Well, Ryan, I so appreciate you sharing your experience today and talking about your relationship with your sister and what a precious connection that the two of you have and helping share some suggestions for other folks out there who might be in a similar situation. Cause you know, as we 
mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it seems like a lot of attention might go to the person who has the illness and a lot of attention might go to the person who is grieving the death of someone, but there's just not that much focus on the folks who are supporting people who have an illness. So I really appreciate you kind of bringing light to that topic today. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to uh, share. Um, Thanks for uh, letting me speak and uh, I hope this is something that, that people find useful. And listeners, thank you for being part of our audience. Otherwise, it would just be Ryan and I talking into the void. So we're glad that you're out there. If you are new to our podcast, you can find all of our Grief Out Loud episodes on our website, dougy.org, or Apple Podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever new platform you're using to listen to your podcasts. A lot of our episodes come from listeners. Uh, Ryan reached out to me, actually, in in our conversation. That's how we created this episode. So if you're out there listening and you've got a topic you think would make a great episode, please let us know. You can email us at help at Dougie.org. And we'd love to hear from you just of what you think of the show. So really appreciate you listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.